guys, welcome back to the Mature Movers podcast. Um, today we are going to be talking to Nick Sanderson, founder and CEO of Audley Group, the UK's largest developer and operator of luxury retirement villages. Nick is hugely influential within the retirement living sector at a national and international level, where he often appears as a key speaker and advisor. Nick also enjoys skiing, running and cycling and will be fundraising for the Audley Foundation by doing six kilometres of running and 100 kilometres of cycling. So welcome, um, Nick. Thank you so much for coming and talking to me today. Um, my first question today is, how did you first get into the later life sector? Well, no, it's nice to be here. Um, I got involved through a slightly circuitous route. I can't say it was a life plan. It wasn't something I was thinking about at doing my A-levels, thinking that's a good place to go. Um, my background actually was in house building. Actually, my father was a house builder. So I grew up being dragged around building sites and things to look at when I was young. And it seemed a natural thing for me to do after, after my education to go and learn to work with him, to work with him actually a few years, which I did, to learn about all of the different aspects of, of house building. And uh, then, of course, I was about 22, 23. So I, um, as you do at 22, 23, I thought I must have learned everything about it by now. So time to go and do something else. And my sister's boyfriend, as the things randomly happen, was a doctor. He just qualified. He was at the same school as me, but he'd just got, come back from Oxford. He'd just qualified. And his first couple of years as a locum, and we were in the pub one night, as you are, and we were talking about the fact we both knew everything about medicine and house building. We ought to do something together. And we agreed we'd start a business together. And it was involved originally, this is a way long, long time ago, before you were born, back in the 80s, um, when um, everything to do with caring for older people was just rubbish, awful and the residential care sector particularly, was just beginning to grow. It was changing from being state-funded to privately provided, and still mostly state-funded. And uh, so we decided that's where we'd go. So we set up a care home business. We managed to persuade, as I still to this day have no idea how, but we managed to persuade a big private equity backer to back us. And uh, off we went. So I think I was, I think it was about 20, I was about 24, I think. Um, Andrew's a, a bit older, but not much. And that's how I got started. Brilliant. That's very, very inspiring, especially because that's so uh, close to my age. Yeah. <laughs> um, to, to, to be so ambitious and kind of take so many risks as well. Um, and I guess it's, it's that naivety as a young person um, and kind of that self-belief that you can do yeah. whatever you kind of want to set your mind to, which is brilliant. It's, um, true. it's true. Actually, interestingly now, I see it much more because your generation talk about wanting to become entrepreneurs. You know, nobody talked about that when I was young. You had a very much more career-defined or defined career pattern. Um, and uh, But now, actually, so many young people want to get into business. It's great. I love it. I love that spirit of enterprise. But, yes, it was unusual for us at that time. Uh, and um, I'm assuming that the idea of focusing this new care, um, this care home was 
as a result of your uh, brother-in-law recognizing the need for this within the care sector and then your background within building um and property yeah no he's a well he never actually became my brother-in-law he's my as a friend he was just my sister oh, sorry but, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah that's another story but they, yes it was it was an unusual combination of development experience but also the healthcare provision obviously within the care sector and we, we particularly wanted to major on older people for the, for a really obvious reason. The first thing we did actually was to go and look. So we we pretended we were looking for our I remember great aunt, grandmother, whatever, and we went round half a dozen care homes. We were both in Kent at the time, and they were just awful, absolutely horrible. Um, I, I was profoundly depressed by it. Like most people before that, I just had experience of my grandmother and, and she lived a reasonably contented old age. So suddenly I was exposed to these awful institutional settings. And we sort of had got to a point where we thought, well, there's two things we can do here. One is just to run away from this and say, oh, I have anything to do with something that's just so depressing. Or the other is to try and have a go at doing it better. And that's what we did. And we, we, we used, I suppose, my development background to look and we said we're never going to convert old buildings we'll build from scratch we'll build purpose built which nobody was doing you know everybody will live in a single bedroom and ensuite bathroom and there were things back that length of time ago nobody was doing everything was very institutional and so it was a, it was a different response and it was a, probably a young person's response actually to what we saw old people were suffering from um, and that's how yeah got started Wow, it's very, very inspirational. And that was called uh, Beaumont. That was Beaumont, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. And um, with Beaumont, I'm assuming you just decided to make it better and then you moved on from Beaumont to Audley. Um, and, and I mean, feel free to describe the differences. And I'm assuming, I shouldn't assume, but I mean, I'm assuming that you learned from your mistakes with Beaumont. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that you made many mistakes, but oh, yes. no, that's please, how please. you... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's kind of how that idea developed and formed, and then eventually came out to be Audley. Yeah, yeah, it was, and it was, it was again going back to my background actually. So the the one thing any older person will ever tell you anywhere, stop them in the street and say, "What's your, what's your vision for how you would want to live in old age?" And all of well, ninety five percent of them will say to you, "I want to stay." living in a, a home of my own for as long as possible, stay independent, do not want to be institutionalised, go into, into care. Um, I want to delay it for as short a period as possible. So what I saw with care homes, and they were lovely, what we were developing, they were very state-of-the-art, much better, and were very successful. It wasn't, truthfully, between you and I, it wasn't that difficult to be successful because the rest of them were so awful. But anyway, that's by the by. We then saw a lot of people coming in who were coming in much too early. They didn't need to come into a residential institutional care setting, but they came because they'd run out of options in their own home. They couldn't be supported properly. So it was, uh, again, probably at the pub one night, we decided, well, let's combine my background in housing with what we're providing with a residential care setting. And when we go and build a care home somewhere, alongside it, we'll build some houses or apartments. And we'll give people the opportunity to live in a home of their own, which they can buy and own, which is very important 
psychologically, gives them independence, but have all the facilities of the care home right next door. So if ever they need anything, they just push a button, give a call, and somebody will come and deal with their, their issues. And it was, it was as simple as that, really. And everybody, when we then built our first project that combined the two up in Stratford-on-Avon back in the mid-late 80s, and we had queues around the block for the housing. Everybody said, well, I don't want to go into a bedroom in a care home where I'm told what time I get up, what time I go to bed, where I sit, whatever. I want to live in that little bungalow over there on my own, independently. And when someone comes to support me, it's on my terms in my home when I want them there. And it's a, fun, it's a subtle but fundamental difference because it's leaving control in people's own hands. So it was from there that Audley grew. Beaumont became part of a bigger care home group because we had all these care homes. And I started Audley in the early 90s, really to, to take that whole concept forward and say, well, everybody wants to live in a home of their own. Let's just provide them with homes of their own. But make sure they have the sort of support services available to them in that home that they would have had otherwise in residential care. That's what we do now. Where did this idea of um, luxury retirement living, and I mean luxury, so for people who haven't ever heard of Audley or seen an Audley village, um, there are swimming pools and they're not just any kind of swimming pools, they're beautiful swimming pools um, surrounded by beautiful gardens and like amazing cafeterias and libraries. Um, what what gave you that idea to, to kind of ins um, install these into the well, care settings? We've been, our villages have been described as the Soho house of, um, of the retirement world and they are, they're, they're wonderful. I mean, they, they have great restaurants, award-winning restaurants, great spas wonderful grounds and just really good at quality housing for people. Um, it, it was partly commercially driven to, to, to focus on the more luxury and the high end of the market. It's a limited market because there's not so many areas you can go and people who can afford it. But we wanted to establish it as a, as a relatively high end brand before we then took it to a more mid market, which I'll come back to in a minute because that's what we do now. Um, the terms of the quality of what we create, I always get annoyed actually that we still surprise people because every, we do. People walk in and go, oh, this is surprising. Why do you, you know, this is what I expected. And the, the presumption behind that is, well, why would anybody who's just because they're older have anything that's substandard or not as good as it is for younger people? And why shouldn't they have great luxury, great interior design, wonderful swimming pools, wonderful facilities? Of course they should, because they're only just you or me, but older. So why suddenly, just because you get older, would you expect to have something less? And it, But it does surprise people. And it's for that very reason, actually, we want our customers to believe that they're treated with as much respect in every way as the mainstream population, because that's who they are. They are the mainstream population. They're just a bit older. So we always deliver something we think that probably probably exceeds their expectations, but because we want to exceed their expectations because they deserve it, and it works. I think, it, yeah, absolutely. And I think what you just said is really important um, about treating older adults equally, because in the past that's not how older adults have been treated, especially um, any any people suffering with mental health or physical health conditions. Um, I don't, I'm sure you've been 
listening or aware of at the moment um kind of this discussion around um uh like cashless um parking mm. and paying for cashless uh, paying for parking um via an app and um i was recently listening to somebody speak about this and kind of saying well the world's moving along and people need to learn to use their mobile phones and their apps and and things like that but um I think there's another point of view to this. And the fact is that these older people have lived incredible lives, whether they've had, um, they've been very lucky to live fantastic lives to a, a weekly daily struggle throughout their life. And they've, they kind of have a right to do what they want. And if they don't want to use apps and they don't want to have to be forced to move along with the times, then they absolutely have that right to be treated the way that they want to um, and not be treated. And it's like being treated as a child. Like you, I'm telling you that you have to do this. Yeah. Um, and in my opinion, that's wrong. And things need to be accessible and we need to not forget or we need to respect older adults, um, and I and I definitely see that when I, whether it's walking past because we've got an um, we've got an orderly village literally five minutes from where I am right now, um, and I walk past it with my dog um, quite regularly, and I and I just think this is where I would like to to end up, and I, I feel absolutely special, and like I've worked my butt off my whole life to get to this point and say actually I want to really enjoy my retirement and be surrounded by beautiful things and beautiful kind of people and and things like that so um I do think that your belief in the way that people should be treated is resonated by that orderly ethos and, and whether it's the way that the building's architecture is to the small little designs and, and things like that so um one thank you for starting that and kick-starting <laughs> that <laughs> well, you're people right. like I, mean, me I, could retire I couldn't agree with you more I mean it, it, it's it, the one thing that our customers spot first and foremost before anything else is being patronized and they do and it's this and actually some of the worst people are younger people to be honest who, who I, I see it all the time you know you sit and talk about what we do and they think, oh, that's nice, you know, poor old things. How lovely that they still have somewhere nice to live. Well, those poor old things have infinitely more wisdom uh, and knowledge and experience. Um, we're a strange society like that. We're the British are almost the worst I know. Um, it's completely the reverse in East, you know, certain, take India. You know, in India, age means wisdom. You're revered for the number of years you've lived. You're considered to be a, a, more, a bigger contributor to everything because of your experience. We just have this ridiculous idea that you get to 65 and that's when you've suddenly lost all economic, social relevance to society, which is just, just rubbish, nonsense. And, and yeah. what we try to do to correct that is just to treat people. We have, we have it all the time with, with, with internally as a business you know one of our big maxims is older people are just you but older so treat them with respect treat them the same as you'd be expected also and also you know, don't don't carve out exceptions for them to talk about them as a different category they're not they're just the same people that's all we've ever tried to do interestingly enough that they are there sometimes they can be their own worst enemies though because they our biggest challenge truth yeah. is getting people to our villages because when they get there, like you, you know, they look at it and go, well, why wouldn't I do this? This is obvious. I can move from my bigger house. I can downsize. It's economically sensible. I can live with like-minded people with great support. Wonderful. Great lifestyle. Be looked after. 
stay independent as long as possible. So what's not to like about it? Well, most of them would say, if they didn't know anything about it, oh, I don't want to live with all those old people. You know, that's, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not really going to live with any group of old people. You say, well, how old are you? And they say, well, I'm 78. You say, well, what do you mean then by old people? Who, who are you talking about? Because actually those people you're talking about are you and your peers and your friends, the people you worked with, the people you were at school with, the people who you played sport with. That's who they are. And they say, well, no, you know, I don't mean it like that. I just mean old people. What they, what they actually mean is frail people, actually, is what they mean. Yeah. Because actually it's nothing about that. People are the same. You know, that they are just, you know, they are themselves categorizing old people in a different way because they don't want to be associated with being old themselves. Yeah, it's it's true, and I I see that. Like I I I often see that there's this like self discriminating language, and like as somebody who's such a pro aging person. I now like notice it as soon as somebody says it and my my heart kind of get, comes yeah. up into my throat and I'm like, oh, like you shouldn't say that. Whereas to everybody else in the room, it would just be normal language. Um, so I, I, can, wrong, I completely understand. It's just fundamentally wrong. You know, I had a piece of work done for me by our council, in the house council the other day about uh, discrimination policy, age discrimination policy. We had a really unusual one where in Clapham we had a young person who had been round the village. In fact, I think had joined our club because we have external members of the clubs and was complaining about the fact there was an age restriction on moving in, saying you have to be 60 to move in. And she was like 50 and saying, it's wrong, it's discriminatory. Why should I, why should I not be able to move in? Which is an interesting point because it is discriminatory mm. in that sense. Um, but the reality is nobody thinks about being condemning of older people and their fads and whatever dislikes whatever they say things about them they'd never say it in the context of race gender sexuality or anything else they just talk about old people's old people they're very, actually the very expression is damning isn't it you know poor old, pe old pensioners poor old things old age pensioners oaps it's awful language it's just not and it it naturally stigmatizes them. And it also, unfortunately, keeps people away from embracing change and good stuff, like I think we do, because they don't want to be associated with it. They push it away for too long. Actually, what ends to happen there is because they don't engage in the conversation early enough, they have a crisis, which means they actually end up exactly where they didn't want to be, which is being institutionalized. So the sooner they embrace the fact that they're getting older and celebrate it and say, now I've got a chance to move into something like Audley do and live a great life and have a better quality of life and outcome. The sooner they do that, the better. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I do think that it's, um, that, that is getting better um, compared to like two years ago. Yeah. Um, and I know that that's not a long time, but the change within two years I've seen is massive, especially, I mean, the pandemic's obviously had such a huge impact on the industry in general, but it's also opened up the world's eyes um, 
it's kind of like you know the Mr Bean like match matchstick thing like and put the matchsticks in your eyes and said like look at what's going on in the care industry and like what we need to recognize and that like we are living in an aging society we need to acknowledge that as young people and we need to start thinking about our futures and if we want that to change when we're in our 70s 80s 90s we need to do something about it now um so hopefully it's getting better and i know I do think that, it like, is i do honestly over the time since andrew and i started back in the 80s it, it, it's taken a lot too long far too long and it is changing i've noticed it more in the last two years absolutely the pandemic has shone a light on the fact that just doing nothing and staying in your big family house, isolated, alone, without support, without access to local services, is not a smart thing to do necessarily. Because if you'd made the choice to move into one of our villages pre-pandemic, they had a whale of a time. You know, they were still living independently, were safe, secure, able to isolate, but we were there to support them, do their shopping, keep them entertained, do whatever was necessary to, to make sure they had a as, as positive an outcome as they could. And consequently, we had very low infection levels and kept them very, very safe. So I think it has shone a light on that. But actually, if I go back over 10 or 20 years, we've now got the sort of leading edge of baby boomers coming through now into their 70s. They are, I can't tell you how different they are to when I started 30 years ago. They are so different. When, if I had a 70 year old customer, think, think about it and make the maths easy. If I had a 70 year old customer in 1990, um, or no, was it, 1980, they were born in 1910. You know? So they grew up, they remember the end of the First World War. They were at school during the general strike, the depression of the 30s. They fought in the Second World War and then had a miserable time through the recession of the 50s and by the time they got to us and being our customer at 70 they were exhausted and tired and just took what they were given and they came from that generation you know don't complain explain don't, don't explain don't complain make do and mend take what you're given think yourself lucky now i've got a 70 year old customer you know they were born when 1942 or 1952 sorry you know they're younger than mick jagger you know they were 10 when the beatles had their first number one they all went off to university grant funded uh, they all got jobs easily they've earned a lot of money they've made a fortune out of owning a house they've traveled the world free cheap travel they are completely different and they've also seen how miserable it was for their parents um, and that they had to put up with grotty institutionalized care homes and hospital beds and they're not going to have it they won't have it so there is a there is a change coming and it's already happened in the states and australia new zealand south africa and places they've already accepted america america had what we had 25 years ago and you know we're just playing catch up we've been very slow here in the uk very slow but it's coming yeah. Yeah, and no, I was actually, that's, I keep telling people that, and it's really hard to kind of prove that, uh, but it's it's quite uh, refreshing to hear somebody else who's obviously been in, in this space for so long to say that, because obviously my background is health and fitness, and whether it's talking about health and fitness within the care sector to health and fitness in other areas we are as the uk we are so behind um in kind of what we're offering like 
you've got people offering um, virtual reality and augmented reality within care homes um, in America and Australia to promote things like um, cognition um, improvement and eye-hand coordination improvement and things like that. Whereas, and I mean, because I'm researching this stuff all the time, I'm finding out about all these amazing gadgets, but I talked to somebody in the UK about it and they don't even have the basic well-being opportunities available. And it's 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 heartbreaking um, because we've got all this technology um, and all these opportunities and all these great minds saying we've got the research to prove that this does this and this is going to really facilitate later life, whether it's happiness, independence, um, mood um, kind of balance. And we're just not doing anything. We're not doing enough. Um, and no, and it can it, it is it again. I mean, we do a lot of we we've got a lot of work going on at the moment in terms of because we have a great opportunity. Think about it. someone moves into one of our villages, we're able to and we do. They have an initial assessment with us, uh, same as if they were coming to you for health and fitness and health and well-being assessment. Um, and it's about adapting their home if it needs it, giving them support if they need it, but also about their physical and mental well-being so much you can do and the, the 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 examples we have around the country of of improvement it's a very strange thing which i learned very early on when i was in this space is people don't expect improvement they think they're on a path of you know, gradual decline and they don't realize how you can reverse not only maintain health but reverse frailty and we see some fantastic examples. Like we've got trainers all around the country in our gyms who do some amazing work. I hear all the time that people who are, who are back walking after a stroke or you know, are, but swimming in a pool and they haven't swum in a pool since they were 15. You know, it's, it's amazing what, what happens. And the quality of life and enhancement you give, as well, by the way, as good nutrition, but it's, and it's not just physical activity, it's also mental stimulation as well keeping them, as you say, cognitively aware, whether it, it could be as simple as just joining a quiz night once a week or engaging with owners and telling, we have these great things where they tell stories of their lives. One person every week will tell their history and then they have questions. It's, it's thought-provoking engagement. You know, and it's not just this, this miserable world I first saw when I started, which is where well, you're finished now. It's just a question of how quickly the end comes. So different. It's great. Yeah. It has all sorts of implications, by the way, because of course, if you if you get to people early, get that sort of engagement, get them to be physically, mentally active, the outcome becomes much better. Their life expectancy extends. Now that does have implications for the country, um, but it also has keeping them safe for longer has huge implications for the NHS and social care, which is in crisis absolute massive, mm -hmm. massive crisis. So the very fact that we're able to keep people active and engaged for longer has huge downstream benefits, not just for the individual, but for society as a whole. Um, and you know, who wants to have a miserable end? You know, make it fun. And we do. No, and, 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 and that's... Hmm. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but um, yeah, that's a that's a, a daily battle I have with people, and and this isn't usually the people I'm working with who are seventy plus recognize 
that they need to just keep moving. It's the 40s, 50s and 60s who are like, oh, by the time I'm 90, I hope I'm not doing any exercise. And it's like, actually, it's yeah. the opposite. <laughs> you have to continue. You have to do this for the rest of your life. And yeah. and if you start now, you will you will reap the rewards in your 90s rather than if you don't start now and you start later it's going to be a, a, a big struggle or you you've been doing yeah. it for a certain amount of time and you stop and you're like yeah. yeah it goes back to the age thing earlier you know people talk about age as a measurement it's not age it's about your state of your health and well-being actually because i see fantastically fit 80 year olds you know, i saw someone in the gym on the rowing machine at Telford this morning probably i don't know how he is probably in his 80s mid 80s but he's in there rowing. He's had, he actually has had a stroke, so he's rehabilitated to some extent. But you know, and, and he's—I can tell you—he will be, and you know better than I do. He will be fitter than an unfit, overweight forty-year-old. Absolutely yeah. fitter in terms of his cardiothoracic health and everything else. He will be, and you can do that, and he'll be happier as a result. And um, and he won't be a user of the NHS. Um, or end up in a care home bed, which is, what, which is where we started this point, which is what everyone's trying to avoid. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so why do you think that Orly villagers are so triumphant in, in what they do? And obviously it's hard to like, you, you seem quite modest, so it's <laughs> hard to kind of toot your own horn, but they are very successful and um, kind of I keep up to date with kind of what the things that you're doing and you're constantly innovating, constantly building and you've got more opportunities left, right and centre. Um, do, do, do you think it comes down to ethos? Do you think it comes down to the employees or yeah. well, where, where do you think this is this yeah. push is coming from? Yeah, well, it is. It, you're right. It's about employees. Um, we talk a lot about hardware and software. It's the same principle. You're going to have the best hardware in the world for your laptop. But if you don't have the right software running it, it doesn't work, and vice versa, actually. Um, so we can build the best buildings in the world, and they all look amazing, and they've got interior design, and great swimming pools, as you said earlier. But what makes them come to life is the people, the staff that we have. And we are we're blessed with amazing staff. I mean, because of what we do, and I think why we encourage them to... Um, believe in the values we've talked about on this call. So the staff is, is critical. The one thing I'd say is listening. We listen to our staff, we also listen fundamentally to our customers. And because of what I was recognizing earlier about how they've changed over the years, it's meant we've had to continue to evolve. You know, we, we don't do the same now as we did 20, 25 years ago. We've listened all the time to what works, what doesn't work, and we've modified um the offer and what it is we've done and I, i'd like to think that's the root of our success the other thing is you can't just listen and then improve the next one you do have to go back to what we were building 20 years ago and make sure you upgrade both the hardware and the software to do that and actually health and well-being we've just been talking about is a big part of that actually we're much much more engaged in the lives of our customers now in hoping to improve their outcomes for them is just one example of the way we've improved. So I think it's it's continually embracing change, not being frightened of change, not just saying that's what we do, lock it in, 
us carry on doing it. It's just listening all the time. Um, I'd like to think that's what it does, but you know, we just got great. We've got a thousand staff now, but like a thousand staff. 90, was it 94% of them are proud to work for us? You know, we have really high ratings from our owners, equivalent to Apple. Um, in terms of customer satisfaction and belief in us. And uh, I'm immensely proud of it. Uh, one, one thing that's really good now, of course, is we're, we're big enough and that we are growing our own. So I was actually with the, the general manager at Chalfont earlier, who's just going on to run our first Mayfield village. Mayfield is our more affordable alternative in Watford. And Nick's going on to run it. He was asking me about it. He's saying, you must be really, he said, you must be, thrilled that people like me are going off to do the next generation of what we do because if they're your own people and they're bought into our culture we don't want to lose them we want them to stay with us and, and take it and breed it through the next staff he's recruiting and owners it's just a continuous process never rest though unfortunately and um do you think that's come from you and the, the kind of the initial the starting founders of Audley or do you think that's something you learnt um, as you guys evolved? Well I think it goes right back to the very beginning of the conversation you know what I learnt from from my father from my family from everything what you know that a lot of it is do you know what most of it is just good common sense and most of it, again, is what I was saying, talking about earlier, which is put yourself in the place of your customers, deliver them something that you'd be happy with and proud of, and you won't go too far wrong. That's what we've always done to start with. Yeah, brilliant. Because I think, I mean, like high, uh, like employee satisfaction um, is so hard to come by uh, within uh, care organisations. Um, and it seems like quite a modern approach to the way that you treat your employees, although it shouldn't be, um, which is which is kind of why I ask, because when I've looked, we, we have these constant discussions, whether it's from the government on the radio or, um, or whoever you're talking to about um, how the, 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 the high job demand within the care sector um, mm. and, and and why that is and and at the end of the day i i truly believe it's down to the way that people are treating their their employees and people would want to work in that sector if it was um att attractive enough but also people were cared for and, and i think obviously you're in the care sector to care for people but no those people giving that care aren't being cared for themselves mm. um i just saw how poorly their their um oh uh, I hope you can still hear me. Yeah. Um, how poorly their staff were being treated, and it, you couldn't. It wasn't just the mental aspect; it was the physical aspect, and and how sedentary these people's lives were, and and you could really see that um, how it was affecting them as a whole, and their their soul was like really like uh, drained. Well, um, and it's absolutely heartbreaking. Well, I think I think that's a long long there's a long conversation about the future of social care, but. You know, my, the care home model, the institutional, let's put 60 people in individual rooms and then tell them how they live their lives is broken. I think it's broken because the limitations on what you do is set up a staffing model, which is very skinny, doesn't provide anything like enough. 
and the whole fee structure that particularly what local authorities pay doesn't pay for anything more than that and it's just broken you know I, I just and it's not as you say therefore a setting that people want to work in and want to feel proud of um, and I think what we've discussed today if, if it works which it will work and it does and we've got evidence that it works you create much nicer environments not only for people to live but for people to work in the outcomes are positive therefore staff feel contentment with what they've achieved um, hopefully we can reward them properly because of the, the model is prepared to pay for it because our customers are willing to pay for it um, but mostly what you're doing therefore by keeping them independent and safe for longer is avoiding them ever needing to end up in that care sector so it will hopefully change the provision of care homes in this country to only really providing for people who are who have quite complex needs towards the end of their lives for a shorter stay and that's what they should be doing and then hopefully they will be more they'll have to be more professional they'll have to employ higher quality staff they'll have to charge more but for a shorter period and that might hopefully reinvigorate the care model because otherwise it is just broken mm, absolutely right well um my last question is will you retire to an orderly village one day oh that's a really tricky question you have to ask my wife more than me actually but yes actually i genuinely would because why wouldn't you okay great uh, actually i sort of have i'm not allowed to have favorites obviously around the country i love yorkshire and we've got a wonderful village <laughs> in derbyshire and actually bristol's pretty good yeah no i, I have a favorite we're in London now, we're in Clapham, which is sort of where I live most of the time, so I'm tempted with that. But yes, I would. And why shouldn't I? That's the whole Absolutely. point. Absolutely. Brilliant. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much um, for talking to me today and sharing all your thoughts and feelings um, and your background as well um, and being so open about it. Um, so if anyone's listening and find out more, a better place for them to go and look best go to the website orderlyvillages.com um, you'll get access to all our villages see more about who we are and what we do and uh, we'd love to see you brilliant well thank you so much nick no, it's been my pleasure